Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome once again to the podcast. Today I have a really great conversation with Alan Matthews, Emeritus Professor of European Agricultural Policy at Trinity College Dublin. Alan takes us through the economic conundrum that is the common agricultural policy, how it has evolved and how it may develop in the future. Along the way we touch on how the CAP can best guide sustainable agricultural practice into the future. I've mentioned before that I've set up a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash irishecompod. The podcast is self-funded and Patreon is a way to contribute as much or as little as you like to keep the show on the road. Okay, so let's get straight into the discussion. Uh, to start, I wanted to get a feel for what the agricultural economics landscape was like when Alan was starting out, as the contemporary agricultural economics community is quite strong in Ireland. A lot of Irish economists, whether they're still working in agriculture or not, cut their teeth working in this field. I myself spent some time during my PhD days at Chagask and at Tenrai. And many economists can thank the Chagask Walsh Fellowship Programme and similar training programmes for providing the tools to work in the field. However, such programmes were not always there. And I kicked off the chat by asking Alan how he developed an interest in agricultural economics in the first place. Well, it's a good question, Niall, because uh, I have no family history in agriculture. My, uh, as far as I can go back, we were we were urban dwellers, shall we say, without much uh, connection to farming, which makes makes us rather unusual, I suppose, in an Irish context. Uh, in my case, uh, when I completed my undergraduate degree at Trinity uh, at the end of the 1960s, uh, I was very interested in development issues at that time. So I went off and uh, worked in, as an economist uh, in Zambia uh, with a scheme which was run and indeed is still run uh, by the Overseas Development Institute in London, where they placed uh, young economists uh, in government ministries, uh, mainly in African countries. Um, and the idea was that you got some exposure uh, to development issues and hopefully would retain that interest uh, throughout one's, uh, one's academic life. So in my case, I happened to be assigned to the Ministry of Agriculture, or actually it was the Ministry of Rural Development, it was called in Zambia. Uh, so that was uh, my first two years of uh, professional life, and as you can imagine, extremely uh, stimulating and extremely rewarding. 
So then when I returned to Ireland, I was uh, I was open to what opportunities there might be. Uh, Ireland was just on the brink of joining the uh, European Economic uh, Community as it was then uh, in 1973. And uh, it turned out that the Irish Farmers Association uh, was expanding their uh, economic backup. They had Alan Jukes uh, in Brussels and they wanted uh, some additional uh, economic expertise uh, in the farm centre in Dublin. So I had the privilege of, of working with two legendary figures in the Irish farming movement, which is TJ Marr uh, as president of the IFA and Sean Healy uh, as secretary general. So I spent two years uh, with the IFA working actually mainly on uh, taxation issues rather than on farm policy issues uh, because 1973 was the year when uh, the Fine Gael Minister for Finance at the time, Richie Ryan, uh, extended the income tax net uh, to farm incomes, uh, which as you can imagine created quite a stir uh, amongst farmers at that time and much of my time was spent uh, trying to understand the uh, the rules, if you like, and then explaining them uh, to uh, to farmers. So uh, after that, then I I went to the states. Uh, you rightly pointed out that uh, for many younger people today, their first uh, foot on the ladder of a career in agricultural economics is through the Walsh Fellowship Scheme. Uh, that didn't exist uh, back then in the 70s, but uh, it indeed it was with the help of a, a Kellogg fellowship uh, that I was able to uh, spend some time in the States. And then when I returned, uh, uh, an opening uh, came up in the economics department in Trinity. And uh, they were looking specifically for somebody to teach a course in agricultural policy. And uh, I, I happened to fit that bill at that time. And uh, that, that was where I spent then the rest of my professional career. So you would have been active, I suppose, at the time of Irish accession to the EU and um, would there have been much of debate around the agri common ag agricultural policy at that time in terms of being in and out or would you have been involved in any of those discussions? Well, as a student, I was probably somewhat critical of the, of the, e, uh, the EEC as it was then. But of course, uh, membership in 1973 meant a huge amount uh, to Irish agriculture because it allowed farmers to escape essentially from being uh, low-cost suppliers to uh, the UK market, which was the only open market for agricultural exports at that time. Uh, so, um, it, but it was a low-cost uh, uh, or a low-price market. Um, so joining meant uh, getting inside uh, the border protection, if you like, that the uh, original European countries uh, had, uh, had established. Uh, effectively, it meant a doubling of farm prices uh, over uh, the five or six years of the transition uh, period. Uh, so it was really... Um, a boom time for Irish agriculture, although, uh, strangely enough, it, it, almost the first year after our membership, we, we had a cattle crisis in 1974, uh, which, um, uh, which was partly uh, due to the over-optimism over of, the, of the expectations created by the prospect of EU membership. So farmers were expanding their numbers. Uh, and then you had the, oil, the first oil price crisis in 1973, which 
knocked uh, the bottom out of the demand for 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 uh, for many commodities, including beef. And then you had capacity problems as well. So you had you had a, a crisis. But in general, those years in the 1970s were were golden years for Irish agriculture because, as I say, we were now inside uh, those protective tariff barriers, whereas previously we had been outside. Okay, so maybe we can wind back then to talk about maybe the common agricultural policy in more general sense. So this is your area of expertise. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about how, why it was set up in the first place and what were the objectives and um, what motivated uh, the cap? It's important to recognise that uh, the cap uh, common agricultural policy, which uh, came into being uh, in, in 1968, although it had been conceived, uh, of course, as part of the original Treaty of Rome in, in 1958, but it didn't come out of out of nowhere. I mean, all of the original uh, six uh, member states of the European Union, I use that term, it's, it's easier, um, uh, had uh, protective agricultural policies, national agricultural policies in place uh, prior to the cap. So the cap, in a sense, was an attempt to integrate uh, six very different national policies with rather different uh, levels of agricultural price support. Germany uh, had uh, a relatively high uh, market price support for its farmers. Uh, the Benelux countries uh, had much lower uh, uh, price, price support. So the cap, in a sense, created uh, the first uh, uniform single market, if you like, in agricultural products with a uh, uniform level of protection against uh, the outside world and a uniform level of price uh, support, because that was the mechanism that was chosen originally uh, to, to support farm incomes. So your question then was, well, why was this policy put in place? Or, you know, why did uh, each of these member states have national support policies in place uh, prior to then? And I think the two uh, driving forces at that time uh, behind agricultural policy, still important today, but not perhaps so important. The first was, was food security, of course, uh, the need to restore agricultural production after the uh, the catastrophe of, of, of the Second World War. Uh, so providing uh, a protected and stable market uh, enabled farmers to get back on their feet remarkably quickly. So uh, the, the food shortages, which we saw in the immediate aftermath at the end of the Second World War, the famines in 1947 and so on, were very quickly overcome. And, and indeed, by the mid-50s, uh, Europe had, uh, a, again, a very uh, adequate uh, supply of food. So food security was quickly achieved. The other objective was, of course, to address uh, the low farm income problem. Um, because, of course, the importance of agriculture and agricultural employment was much greater in Europe uh, in the 1950s and 1960s than it is today. Uh, but uh, standards of living were very low. Uh, so it, it, the, there was an attempt through uh, agricultural policy to transfer uh, income support uh, to uh, what was then a relatively low income uh, segment of the, of the population. Okay, the, the the incomes are relatively low, but um, my economic mind starts working. If there's fewer people, if there's fewer producers, does that not lead to higher prices? Why do we need to go down the route of of, of price supports to, to to support the incomes? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> agriculture 
um, and, and this was sort of uh, a theory which was very um, important uh, when I began uh, my professional career. It was an, an explanation which came, came back from the United States uh, of what was called then the farm problem. Uh, and it tried to provide a, an explanation as to why farmers were caught in a sort of a low-income uh, trap. And it revolved around sort of three concepts. The first was the fact that, uh, which is still the case, uh, that the demand for food is, is relatively uh, uh, income inelastic. That means that as, as income st uh, living standards improve in the, in the general economy, uh, yes, there is some increase in the demand for food, but, but by no means uh, proportionally. Um, so we have Engels' law, uh, uh, you and I would recognize that as. So the demand for food grows over time relatively slowly. Um, at the same time, uh, new technologies were becoming available in the post-war period. So uh, the availability of, of fertilizers, of uh, chemical pesticides, of machines that were much more productive. So there was a very rapid technological advance. So that was pushing uh, the supply potential uh, of agricultural goods out much more rapidly than the demand for these goods uh, was growing. So as economists, we would recognize that's inevitably going to lead to a, a, a fall in prices over time. So farmers were continually facing uh, what we would recognize as declining terms of trade. So the, the prices that they were getting for their products didn't keep up with the prices that they were paying either for their farm inputs or indeed for their general uh, household uh, needs. So, of course, uh, that was a, 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 a sort of price income squeeze. The main way in which farmers tried to escape that was, of course, by becoming more productive, by investing yet again in new technologies. But that only made the problem, if you like, worse over time. Um, of course, what happens in that case, because uh, agriculture uh, was was returning a lower income, and it, it, those working in farming were less productive uh, than those outside, because the 1960s and 70s and so on were a boom uh, time in the non uh, the non farm economy. Uh, so we we saw a, a major exodus of people out of of, of agriculture, um, uh, and the number of farms uh, declining. And of course, that is also something which. I suppose, feeds into the debate around agricultural policy. Do we want to try to uh, slow down this process of structural adjustment, try to maintain uh, a larger number of farmers than, if you like, market forces would, would otherwise uh, determine? Okay. The first phase of the, the cap, my understanding is that it was characterized by a lot of overproduction. And that led to reforms. Were there any other pros and cons associated with the uh, with the first stage of the of of, of the cap before it led to to initial uh, round of reforms? Yes. Well, as I say, the, the cap formally uh, was established in 1968, and during the first three uh, decades of its existence, so until the first major reform, 1992, um, uh, essentially the the instrument used to try to transfer incomes to farmers was to maintain uh, agricultural prices uh, artificially high, so uh, well above what uh, the market would have uh, determined. Um, and 
certainly much higher than what world market prices would be. So that I, I would say on average prices within the European Union during those first three decades of the cap were probably at least twice as high as world market prices. And in some, for some commodities like sugar, uh, it could even be you know, three times uh, as high in, in, on some occasions. Of course, these high prices stimulated farmers to produce more. But at the same time, uh, both because uh, the growth of demand uh, with respect to income is low anyway, but, and of course, keeping prices high also tended to uh, suppress demand. So as you say, we built up these enormous surpluses uh, of dairy products, of wine lakes, of beef, and so on. Uh, so certainly when I was starting uh, uh, working in this area in the 1970s, uh, we ran out of cold storage uh, to store all of the surplus beef. And I well remember we had refrigerated ships uh, in Cork Harbour simply there to actually uh, keep uh, uh, beef that could not be sold at, on, on the market uh, in storage uh, for, for, for some time. So uh, there was huge pressure uh, to reform. And the first major reform, of course, took place in 1984 uh, when we had the introduction of milk quotas. Uh, so to try to curb uh, surplus uh, production in the dairy sector, you, you had two uh, alternatives. You either uh, cut prices uh, significantly to try to discourage farmers from producing, but of course that was going to uh, hurt their incomes in a major way. Um, and indeed, one of the, the big names in, in Irish agricultural economics, Seamus Sheehy, uh, one of his most important papers was to show uh, that from the, purely from a farmer income point of view, uh, if you wanted to control supply, doing so by means of a quota, in other words, controlling the supply in a, in a quantity way, uh, safeguarded incomes, um, uh, and at the same time, of course, it put a, a limit on, on, on production. So the dairy quota for Ireland uh, was a major uh, shift uh, in, in policy because that, of course, has always been our most competitive sector, uh, the sector that has yielded the highest incomes uh, to the farmers uh, in that sector. So, you know, putting a sudden break and saying, look, you can't expand in dairying anymore, that was a huge shock uh, to uh, the Irish system. More generally then, in, in 1992, we had an Irish commissioner for agriculture, uh, Ray McSherry, and um, there were also international trade talks going on at the time. Um, there was a lot of tension uh, between Europe and the United States because both of these major agricultural producers were heavily subsidizing uh, uh, agricultural production and, and were dumping their surpluses on the world market. So the you know, world market prices were very depressed. Uh, that led to even higher uh, subventions, if you like, in terms of subsidies to farmers, but that just kept production up even more, you know, with the result that uh, you were on a, a, a sort of a, treasure, a treadmill. Uh, the policy was becoming more and more expensive on both sides. Uh, of, the, of the Atlantic. Uh, so there was a recognition that, you know, change had to come. So what Sherry did, he, he said, okay, we're going to cut prices, something which they had refused to do uh, 10 years earlier with the, with the milk market, but we are going to compensate you as farmers 
for those price cuts. We are going to give you uh, direct payments. So this was the beginning of the so-called check in the post uh, to farmers uh, from about 1994 uh, when it was introduced for the first time. Um, and originally, uh, the payments were linked to uh, the level of production on farms. So in technical terms, we, we call these coupled payments. So, uh, you know, the more head of capital that you had, uh, the, the, the larger the, 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 the linked payments that, that you got, the more hectares of, of cereals that you planted, uh, the larger the, uh, the payment that you got. But the, the key innovation was breaking this link between the income objective of the cap which now was increasingly delivered uh, through these direct payments, and uh, market prices, which could fall to a more natural level and be, if you like, uh, the, the, the sort of signal to producers about how much of, uh, to produce and, and, and which commodities and so on, you know, the way we would expect markets uh, to work. And so how effective was that then in terms of a, a disincentive to produce? And, and what, did it help solve the issue to the extent that, that it was expected? Well, it it certainly did help. Um, uh, so the fact that farmers were, were um, in a sense, no longer stimulated by these high prices. So we began to, uh, to eliminate some of these large uh, stocks that had, had emerged in, in the 1980s. But there was still a stimulus to production. You know, farmers were still, the more you produced, the more subsidy you got. Um, so it didn't completely break the link between the support system and over uh, production. Um, now, there were some elements, for example, if you were an arable farmer, uh, in order to be eligible for that uh, check in the post, uh, you had to set aside uh, a significant uh, area of your uh, planted uh, uh, your planted area, maybe ten percent, even in some years up to fifteen percent. So there was kind of a supply control element. Um, but in the mid two thousands, uh, um, with an Austrian uh, farm commissioner, Franz Fischler, uh, there was another major reform where these direct payments were decoupled from production. Now, what this means is that they, the farmers uh, received um, exactly the same amount as they received in uh, what was called the reference period. So in other words, the, uh, the, the, the years, uh, two or three years prior to this reform in, in 2005. So whatever they, 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 they received in the coupled payments, uh, coupled either to animal numbers or to the areas of, uh, of arable crops planted, that amount of support was simply converted into a per hectare payment. So it was now linked not to the production, but to the land area that you as a farmer had. So what was the big change? The big change was that you could, you could change your production. In fact, you could even decide not to produce anything at all, and you would still be entitled to get that same level of support. So the level of support was fixed regardless of what you produced or indeed if you produced anything at all. 
So that was yeah. that was the that was a significant change because now the income support element delivered through these direct payments was now completely separated from uh, the production side, uh, which was driven by the, the market prices. Of course, when I say completely separated, uh, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit. There's certainly a lot of controversy within the literature as to whether there might indeed be some production effect of these direct payments. So they're not formally linked to how much you produce. But for example, if you want to get a loan to expand your, your, your milking parlor, you want to, 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 to build up your dairy, your dairy herd. And if you go to the bank uh, and you say, look, I have a guaranteed stream of income, no matter what the market price is, you know, I see, I, I'm going to get uh, 10,000 euro in direct payments every year. So, you know, I'm, I'm a good credit risk uh, and, and you can easily uh, uh, agree to, 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 to give me the loan that I need. So you can see that, you know, there are some ways in which even these so-called decoupled payments can actually contribute to, to increased production. But one important point uh, about the way in which uh, the, these payments were originally uh, initiated, Niall, is that, uh, as I say, they were linked to the amount of money that the farmer was getting uh, in the so-called reference period. And in Ireland, uh, farmers were getting very different amounts of payment. So the distribution of the, the decoupled direct payments was very uneven in Ireland. There were some farmers who had uh, uh, were lucky. They were they had very high what they call um, uh, sort of premiums. Uh, the, the, the value of the premiums uh, attached to their land was very high, and there were other farmers who, simply because of the enterprise they were in, uh, uh, may not have actually been eligible for the, uh, the 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 coupled direct payments that McSherry had introduced. So they actually had very low entitlements, very low premium payments. Uh, um, and that is a problem that still exists today, uh, the differences between uh, the value of these entitlements uh, between one farmer and, and another, and particularly between, let's say, the, the east of the country, where on average uh, these entitlement payments are much higher, uh, and the west of the country, where, uh, um, because agriculture was never so intensive, uh, so the payment levels are lower. And of course, uh, farmers in the West feel that they are discriminated against. Farmers in the East feel that uh, if you send the money uh, uh, West, then you are simply wasting it because uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not any longer sort of linked to efficient farming, if you like. Uh, that would be the, the argument that would be used. So that was really nice uh, explanation as to how things changed and why they changed. And when I look at it, so my perspective is always my area would be energy. And I look at when I look at through that lens and I see the shift from uh, receiving uh, the supports based on output versus the direct payment. It's almost like what you see in energy markets where you have a capacity payment, which is basically a payment for being there and the value because there's value of you just being there because you, you make sure the lights don't go out. So I wonder, is there a similar sort of parallel here when it comes to agriculture? Maybe because we're paying farmers for the value of just being there. And it seems like the objective has shifted slightly from just food security towards maybe environmental reasons. Um, and the value of being there maybe ties into this sort of environmental focus. And 
I suppose my question is, like, the objective seems to have changed, but it's it's not very clear as to what the objective of the cap is now. I think I think you're absolutely right. So I, I've kind of tried to give you a fairly neutral uh, account of how the reforms uh, followed uh, each other. Uh, but I would have to say that even after the most recent reform in, in, in 2005, uh, you know, there's still a lot of criticism of the way the system uh, works. So if we take the, the, the direct payments, um, uh, many people exactly as you have done, ask, you know, why are we really making these payments? What is the, what is the taxpayer getting in return? Um, because if you say that, you know, we're, we want to support poor farmers or, or, or low farm incomes, but because the payments are related to the number of hectares of land that you own, the great bulk of the payments go to you know, very large farmers that by no stretch of the imagination uh, can you see these as, as, as people who are deserving of, of, of income support. Of course, even if you were to, and there have been some efforts more recently to increase uh, the payments to, to smaller holdings, but, you know, is this really an effective way? If, if a, smaller a smaller farmer is going to get another 500 uh, euro uh, per annum. Is that going to make the difference between survival or not? I mean, what we observe in practice is that uh, one of the reasons why, uh, particularly in Ireland, um, you know, structural change has been perhaps relatively slow over the last two to three decades has been because many uh, smaller farms are able to hold on to, to remain in farming because they're able to get uh, off farm income. Um, and they can combine, uh, particularly uh, cattle farming, which uh, you know is 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 very suitable to an off-farm job, unlike a dairy farm where basically you have to be uh, on site uh, all the time. Um, so, uh, you know, relative to say a rural development policy, which uh, tried to more effectively. Uh, put in place uh, conditions to attract, you know, off-farm jobs to rural areas, and, and perhaps allow uh, farmers to to combine uh, a certain amount of farming with 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 with, uh, with no farm job. You know, that seems to me is would be a more effective way of addressing the low income problem on small farms than uh, you know increasing uh, the direct payments, which you know I think inevitably will 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 never be will never be enough. But then the other issue that you raise is the fact that although food security and the farm income problem were the original driving uh, forces behind the cap, uh, particularly since the 1980s, we've become much more aware of uh, other pressures, uh, particularly environmental, uh, uh, the environmental impact uh, or footprint of, of farming. Uh, more recently, the climate uh, footprint uh, of agriculture. And if you want to broaden the picture even more, uh, the whole impact of the food system uh, in terms of our health, uh, diet-related diseases, the environmental impact of uh, what we eat and the diets that we choose and so on. So these, are, these have become uh, uh, much more uh, significant issues on the agenda now. Um, and, of course, that feeds into the debate about 
the justification and the legitimacy for direct payments because a lot of people would argue, you know, farmers are getting uh, this support from the taxpayer, but, you know, we want to ensure that those farmers are actually uh, also uh, helping to improve our environment, you know, doing things that uh, help to protect and maintain biodiversity, that uh, provide uh, environmental services, maybe flood protection in, 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 in upland uh, areas. Um, and certainly uh, uh, we want to, um, you know, we don't want to support uh, uh, farmers that may be seen as, as, as polluting waterways or as contributing uh, excessively to, to climate change. Uh, so so uh, that has certainly uh, uh, become much more the focus of debate around the cap over the past few years. I suppose when we look at the, the cap going forward, what, what would you see as being the objective, I suppose, first of all? And secondly, how would you see as, as being the most uh, effective way of, of achieving those objectives? Well, first of all, we need an agricultural policy. Uh, that that's, it seems to me uh, fairly fairly uncontestable um, because agriculture and food production is just full of what we as economists would identify as market failures. Either you have missing markets, which are largely the environmental markets, so uh, emissions from, from, from agriculture, you know, don't bear any, any cost, any price. So, of course, there's no immediate incentive, at least, uh, on farmers to, to reduce emissions because there's no cost to their business uh, of, 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 of continuing uh, with, 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 with what they're doing. Um, so we do need uh, uh, agricultural policy to, to help address these market failures, as I say, either missing markets or indeed imperfect markets, and and certainly uh, there would be uh, there would be a widespread perception that farmers' position in the in in the food value chain is one of very weak sort of bargaining position against you know what have become very powerful players both at the supermarket level, where in most countries you tend to have maybe three major supermarket buyers controlling you know 70, 80 percent of the groceries market. Uh, and even at the food processing level, at the at the meat at the meat plant level, level farmers don't always have many options to choose between. So there is a, a sense, perhaps, in which uh, there is support needed uh, from policy to try to strengthen and improve the position of farmers, you know, in the food chain. So I would say yes, we do need agricultural policy, um, but. Uh, I would want to see it move away from this, what I would sort of see as a, sort of almost a one-sided um, uh, obsession, maybe is too strong a word, but one-sided uh, emphasis on, on income support because, you know, not all small farmers are poor. Um, as I say, some of them will have off-farm income, uh, some small farms can be, you know, very uh, productive uh, and intensive horticultural units, so you can get a very good living. So smallness is not necessarily poor, and even so, if you want to identify income support as your objective, first of all, why why should it only be 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 uh, low income farm households that you're interested in? Surely poverty. Uh, and low income is 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 a, a problem that goes beyond farming and should be addressed 
uh, more appropriately through through general uh, sort of welfare supports. And indeed, in Ireland, we have uh, an excellent scheme that that provides such uh, assistance uh, to farm households completely outside of agricultural uh, uh, policy. Um, so what we've got to do is, is recognize uh, what are these hugely significant challenges now uh, from uh, the environmental side um, uh, and the increasing concern about the, uh, the environmental footprint of our, of our food consumption habits. And we need to try to use um, uh, the supports we give to, 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 to farmers to get to, to move them more in a sustainable uh, farming direction. So in other words, to, to try to uh, incentivize farmers um, uh, to adopt those practices, uh, which will help to improve our environment, uh, which will help to lower our emissions, uh, and of course, continue to provide uh, safe and nutritious food, which, which goes uh, without saying. So we can use support for that. Um, we can also use regulation, of course, uh, because in many cases uh, it's appropriate if we if we follow the uh, principle uh, actually laid down in the European treaties that the polluter uh, should pay. Uh, so in the case of a lot of environmental pollution, the, the correct way to address it is through uh, regulation, as in uh, what we would have the regulation of, of, of nitrate uh, uh, use in, in, in Ireland or the protection of, of, of areas of um, uh, uh, special nature protection areas and so on. Um, so I would see both uh, combining as part of agricultural policy. So support to incentivize farmers to, to do the right thing, uh, but also a regulatory baseline uh, which would ensure that uh, polluters don't get away for free. Okay, that's that's quite interesting. So the way I see it in my mind is basically structuring payments or structuring incentives, be it payments or taxes or, or subsidies, I don't know which would be more appropriate in different contexts, but to guide farmers towards more sustainable production practices. Um, one thing that that I see is perhaps missing in that puzzle is that a lot of these um, benefits, a lot of these impacts that we perhaps concerned about, are they always valued? And do we need to sort of put a place of value on maybe biodiversity and all these other ecosystem services and incorporate that into the payment? It seems quite like a lot of detail is required there to, to make sure that everybody is guided in the right way to make the most sustainable practices. I mean, the range of impacts that uh, a land manager has on the environment. So it can be the air, it can be soil, it can be water, uh, it can be uh, climate emissions. So trying to integrate all of these into the farmer's decision-making process, if you like, it can be can be can be complicated and and is complicated. I, I would make two points. The first is that over perhaps two decades uh, or even more now, we have developed quite a lot of experience in the design of what are called agri-environment schemes. So these are the schemes uh, where we are incentivizing farmers. Uh, to go beyond the regulatory uh, baseline in terms of uh, environmental practices. Um, in many cases, in fact, in most cases, uh, the, these payments are made 
on a, on a per hectare basis in return for the farmer adopting certain management practices. Um, so the link with the environmental outcome is at best somewhat indirect. Um, what we, what, uh, what various um, countries and colleagues are experimenting with is, is what are called results-based environmental payments. Uh, and the best example, uh, probably well known to, to, to listeners of, of the pod podcast, would be uh, the Burren scheme uh, in County Clare. Uh, developed, uh, you know, together with the local farmers uh, there and where farmers get paid uh, on the basis of uh, results, the outcomes that they uh, that they achieve. So they, they know what they, they need to do to, to get the payment. It's up to them to decide, you know, given their farming system, their family circumstances, what is the most uh, sensible, the most effective way for them. So instead of, if you like, the agricultural advisor coming and prescribing what the farmer should do in order to get the payment, uh, you set some results. You say, look, we, we want to try to uh, increase biodiversity uh, or particular habitat for a bird uh, that may be on the, on the red list. Um, uh, so, you know, this is what we want to achieve. Um, and to the extent that you can achieve those results, we will pay you for that. And it's up to you to decide, you know, we'll give you advice and, and support, but it's up to you to decide how it is that you're going to do that. So these schemes uh, tend to be uh, better accepted by farmers because it gives them much greater freedom. In a sense, they're much more involved in the environmental program than simply following a set of rules set out in a departmental uh, handbook. So I would love to see those type of results-based schemes expanded and, and extended and, and taken up more in the, in the next round of, 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 of CAP reform. So that's one answer to the, uh, to the complexity issue that you, uh, that you raised, Niall. The other, of course, is uh, you know, the potential to make use of the new digital technologies. Um, you know, farmers themselves are inputting a lot of data simply, you know, in terms of being able to track their own farm uh, performance, you know, how much uh, nitrogen they're applying, what field they have applied it to, when did they apply it, and, and so on. Now, if we can find a way of sharing this data uh, such that the, uh, the, the farmer's ownership of the data is protected, of course, but by sharing it, it obviously becomes much more valuable. Um, and it allows perhaps uh, uh, policymakers to identify hotspots, you know, where you need to, to have more targeted uh, interventions um, or uh, to design uh, programs which, you know, address particular uh, environmental problems in, in a particular area. So, uh, you know, maybe I'm a bit of a, an optimist uh, here, but, uh, you know, I do see the potential of these new digital technologies, smartphone apps and, and so on, uh, to, to actually uh, help to address some of that complexity issue that you that you yeah, raised. That's that's really interesting. I think one thing when you're when we have to tackle environmental issues, space is always very important. So those sort of apps can really target yeah, pinpoint hotspots. That is really interesting. Um, maybe if we just move on to um, 
discussing climate and we sort of touched on it briefly, but one thing I found very interesting was uh, some of the recommendations you, meant, you made with the, the Climate Change Advisory Council. But you had a nice little uh, mechanism that I really liked, a sort of an, a reverse auction scheme to incentivize people to, to maybe move out of, of beef farming. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, difficult issues uh, uh, raised, uh, raised in the debate around agriculture and climate. Um, first of all, uh, I mean, the context here is, as uh, you and everyone will know, uh, is that we do have uh, legally binding obligations uh, at the national level uh, in terms of reduction commitments uh, to, to meet uh, for uh, what are called the the non-traded sector. So you have the uh, the traded sector. These are the, the the power plants, large industries that are involved in the emissions trading scheme, and uh, they have their own uh, way of of, uh, of uh, reducing. Uh, emissions, they have to purchase allowances uh, to, to do that. And then you have the, the sectors, uh, largely transport, um, agriculture, uh, uh, dwellings, home heating, uh, and some small industries, which uh, are covered by these legally binding uh, reduction uh, targets. And of course, for Ireland, uh, we stand out because uh, emissions uh, from agriculture uh, are uh, a third of our national total, but they're 45% of the uh, emissions that are covered by our reduction target. So if we have a, a, a reduction target of 30% uh, by 2030, you can't uh, uh, hide agricultural emissions behind uh, reductions in transport or in, uh, in heat as perhaps you could do in, in, in some other European countries where agricultural emissions would be would make up a smaller share. You know, here they're almost half. So agricultural emissions have got to be, uh, have got to be reduced. Um, and unfortunately, uh, what we observe uh, at the moment is, if anything, they're probably slightly increasing uh, at the moment. Uh, uh, so we're not on a downward trend. Uh, so that's the context. Um, and of course, one of the reasons why uh, emissions from agriculture are so important uh, in Ireland is because of the nature of our farming, basically uh, ruminant livestock. Uh, so whether it's dairying or whether it's cattle or sheep, um, uh, emissions um, per unit of output are, are higher for these ruminant uh, enterprises than they would be for, for, for crop enterprises in, in, in other European countries. Um, and uh, let's be clear, um, about half of uh, the emissions in agriculture uh, in Ireland uh, come from the dairy herd and the other half uh, from, uh, from uh, the cattle herd, from beef farming. So both uh, need to be addressed. We can't just uh, look at, at one side. But when you look at the beef farming, surely it is an opportunity. Uh, and I see it as an opportunity, not as a punishment or as a sanction. It's an opportunity that so many uh, beef farmers are not uh, covering their production costs at the moment. They are living, they are, their, their enterprise is surviving simply because of the direct payments. Recall what I said earlier, these direct payments are simply linked to the area of land uh, that you have. And, and there's no, um, well, there are some obligations uh, that you, you need to fulfill, but uh, I would see these as being pretty pretty minimal. 
so so you know one way to think about this is to sort of say could you offer these farmers some kind of an environmental payment which would uh, at, at 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 least maintain their current income but hopefully also you know provide some top up some some incentive uh, an environmental scheme which would not uh, require them to to eliminate uh, their, their their cattle. It would keep keep cattle on the farm, but 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 maybe have fewer such cattle. And some link it to some kind of an extensification uh, scheme. Now it wouldn't suit all farms, um, uh, and not all beef farms are are uh, certainly not all beef farms are intensive anyway. Uh, but it could help to maybe remove. Uh, if it was properly designed, you know, remove, uh, you know, 100,000 uh, animals from the herd. And of course, that uh, would significantly contribute to uh, reducing our, our, our emissions. So, you know, that's on the, that's on the beef side. Um, uh, there are other things that these farmers might look at. Uh, uh, the obvious ones uh, are, are forestry. Um, it may be uh, on some farms that, you know, some kind of bioenergy uh, crop might be uh, might be appropriate, um, but uh, extensification seems to me to be uh, you know a no-brainer given that so many of these farmers are not making money from beef uh, at the moment. On the dairy side, uh, which as I say also must be addressed, um, dairying is uh, uh, very profitable for, for 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 most dairy farmers. It it, it does uh, yield uh, a, a good income. Um, but it's clear that in some regions of the country, we have gone beyond uh, what we might call the environmental boundaries. Um, and the, simply the number of animals is, is, is overstressing uh, the environment, both in terms of air quality, uh, in terms of climate emissions, in terms of water quality, uh, and in terms of biodiversity loss. Um, so I think... Here, uh, one could certainly think of uh, again rejigging the, uh, the, the the cap subsidy payments, uh, but they're not so important on dairy farms, so they probably wouldn't be so powerful an incentive. So we also need to look at regulation, um, and in particular, we need to strengthen uh, the nitrates uh, regulation, where many dairy farmers actually get derogations uh, from the nitrate regulation. It means that they can uh, maintain uh, stocking rates and stocking densities, uh, which are higher than would otherwise uh, be allowed. Um, and you know there is an opportunity uh, now in the coming year to tighten up on these uh, regulations. Um, uh, you know, maybe not necessarily saying that you 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 have to uh, to cut your numbers, but saying you have to cut your emissions. So you have to find ways on your farm of offsetting some of those uh, those uh, dairy cow emissions. It could be planting, uh, it could be planting a woodland. Uh, it could be in, in some areas maybe looking at agroforestry. Uh, you know, this is something relatively new, uh, which we're beginning to experiment with. Um, uh, it could be uh, trying to do uh, soil measurements uh, to try to actually change your grazing regime and to build up carbon in the soil. Uh, you know, there are different mechanisms uh, that might be open to, to dairy farmers uh, that, that would go alongside, if you like, their, 
their milk production business. On the beef side, I think one proposal was that you would perhaps have, have some sort of system where the farmer would bid, in, bid an amount to say, I'm willing to reduce a certain amount of animals at a certain price. And that overcomes the sort of information asymmetry where you're trying to guess what the farmer wants, whereas they, they can reveal it themselves, which, which I, I really liked. Yeah, I mean, that, that again, uh, Niall, is, is, is something that, have, uh, you know, there's been quite a lot of work done in terms of, you know, using auctions uh, in agri-environmental schemes. The, 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 um, the evidence is, is mixed, I have to say. You know, as economists, we tend to like, you know, market-based solutions because, in principle, uh, they, should be, uh, they should be efficient. They, they should achieve the objective at the least cost. Um, uh, so, you know, where they work, we, we, we should certainly try to make use of them. Um, uh, but, you know, th- th- there is a lot of work going on in this area to try to see, you know, what does work, um, uh, because you can also game these kinds of systems in, in, in different ways. Uh, so. But again, you, you know, in principle, um, perhaps worth making the point that, uh, we need in agricultural policy, I suspect this is true for almost any area of policy that you could think of, we need to be much more willing to, to conduct to pilot experiments, you know, to actually try something out on a small scale first to see, you know, what does work. Uh, I mentioned earlier that, you know, we have had some pilot schemes in terms of results-based uh, agri-environment schemes. You know, we, we, we've, we've seen what works you know, what might not work, uh, 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 we can now try to scale this up. But that approach of, instead of just rolling out a national scheme, you know, without any idea how it's actually going to be received, think about it, it's it's kind of really rather strange, isn't it? Yes, um, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, so so I think, uh, I know in your area, in terms of, um, you know, trying to to do retrofitting of the of, of the housing stock. I, I see that there are a number of experiments going on now, where you have in local areas, the department is supporting uh, community-based schemes and and uh, trying to see if that would work. So you know, maybe maybe the public uh, service is beginning to <laughs> to, be, to to see the merits of yeah. of, of, of this uh, more experimental approach. So, so one thing that that is always on my mind is that when we think about ag- agriculture and trying to reduce emissions, it seems to be more demand driven. If people ate less meat, for example, it, it would help solve the problem. And if the demand is at a European level, does that not mean that we should be looking at this from a European perspective? I, I, my own idea would be in something along the lines of if we had like a greenhouse gas tax at a European level, that would adjust prices, demand would follow, and then supply will, will readjust to the new demand. You know, in, in principle, I think this makes uh, a lot of a lot of sense. Um, the difficulty right now is that we don't have uh, the tools in place that allow us to accurately measure emissions at at the farm level. So obviously, uh, you know, we 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 estimate uh, total emissions from agriculture uh, for the national inventories, you know, based on, on, on different types of models and animal numbers and, and, and so on. Um, but if you were, if you wanted to introduce um, uh, a sort of market-based uh, incentive uh, levy system, which I would 
agree with you is 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 the way we should be thinking. But at this point in time, uh, we we don't we simply don't know, or we can't measure sufficiently accurately um, the emissions uh, of an individual farmer, and you know whether those emissions are increasing or decreasing, because that's what you want to penalise it or or to incentivize uh, is the change in emissions. Now there are again um, very. Uh, um, uh, promising developments uh, here. First of all, um, we may see this beginning initially with uh, trying to measure uh, emissions uh, and sequestration, which is the removal uh, of carbon from the air in agricultural soils. Uh, so um, within some of the more recent uh, communications from the European Commission, uh, there is a recognition that it would make sense uh, to pay farmers, you know, if they are able to increase uh, sequestration, uh, that is to say removals of, of, of carbon uh, and to actually store it uh, in, 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 in agricultural soils. And there seems to be certainly uh, techniques which would, which would do that. But the, the big problem is how do you accurately measure uh, the change in the carbon stock? Uh, because you know every field is different, even bits of fields are different from one another. Um, you're you're measuring very small changes in the total stock of 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 of, uh, of uh, soil carbon. It's very sensitive to the weather and climate conditions in a particular year. So you know you'd want to do it over a period of years to get some sort of reasonable sense of the trend. So all of these issues uh, need to be addressed. Um, New Zealand is the country that has gone furthest along this path, um, and they are uh, actively looking to introduce some kind of an emissions trading type scheme for agricultural emissions uh, by 2025. So given that they have a very large ruminant agriculture sector too, uh, it'll be very interesting for us in Ireland to, to, to see whether they succeed in that, and obviously Hopefully, we could try to learn uh, uh, from, from, from some of their lessons. Um, so I would see, at this point in time, the most obvious instrument to use is the fact that we already have a, a payment system in place, the Common Agricultural Policy. Let's make better use of that, because clearly, uh, there is a lot of waste in that system at the present time. A lot of money is going to farmers, as I say, who have no objective income need. Uh, so my sense at this point in time is, let's try to make better use of the cap funding to promote, to incentivize, uh, um, you know, farmers to, 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 to move in the right direction with respect to climate or ammonia emissions or, 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 or environment, whatever it might be. Um, while at the same time, you know, trying to work on these measurement questions so that uh, uh, as we move closer and closer to, you know, the very ambitious 2050 targets, that agriculture would gradually be brought into the mainstream, if you like, and, and into a, a sort of market-based uh, system along with transport, uh, heat, and, and, and other sectors. Yeah, that's, no, that is very interesting. I think it it comes back to the whole situation. It's much easier to implement a system like that in, in energy where you have huge firms that can, can take these 
changes on board as opposed to maybe small small farmers or householders or whatever it, 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 it's a lot more difficult in terms of implementation um so just for the final few minutes uh i wonder could we just speak a bit about brexit i know you've took a great interest as many of us have on the developments of brexit and one thing that's interesting is uh, boris johnson made some promise a few months ago about how he's going to take farmers out of of the cap and put in place some alternative i don't know do you know much about that or what might be envisaged there i think that you know one of the very very few uh potentially positive things from uh, from Brexit, uh, which is uh, of course uh, a totally regrettable uh, step on the part of the United Kingdom, but one of the potentially positive things is that uh, it does give them the possibility, which they have argued for 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 many decades in Europe, uh, to move towards uh, a more environmentally based uh, agricultural payment scheme. Um, Important to point out here, Niall, is that agricultural policy uh, in the United Kingdom is a delegated uh, power. So Northern Ireland will not have the same agricultural policy as England, for example. And uh, it's clear that uh, agricultural policy in the North will remain very similar to what it is at the moment. There is no great uh, desire uh, among stakeholders in the North uh, to 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 bring about great change, but in England, uh, which of course is the major uh, uh, component of, of, of UK agriculture, um, there uh, the British government has already introduced its so-called agriculture bill, uh, and it does have uh, for those of us in the European Union um, some very interesting directions. First of all, uh, it proposes to eliminate uh, these hectare-based direct payments within a relatively short uh, period of time, actually within a five- or six-year period from from, uh, uh, 2022. So those support systems, which are are actually also very important uh, to the incomes of UK farmers. Um, So in Ireland, on average, uh, these um, uh, checks in the post, the direct payments, make up about 70% of of Irish farm income. Now, it's higher uh, in the case of the beef farmers, it's lower in the case of the dairy farmers. But even in the UK, uh, you know, it's it's probably around 60%. So the British government is saying, look, we are going to stop these payments, uh, you know, over the next uh, six years. So um, you'd better get used to it. And to make it easier, we, we will actually give you the option Uh, to roll up these payments uh, into a lump sum. So let's say that you see uh, that at the end of the six-year period, uh, you think it's unlikely that you would have a viable farm business. Well, you know, we will allow you to roll up your payments, uh, take a capital sum, and maybe that would give you the the capital to to diversify your farm business, maybe into farm tourism or, uh, you know, develop some kind of on-farm processing or some conference facilities or move into care farming, whatever, whatever, whatever it might be. But then in addition, the, the British government is saying, but we do recognize, as I've already mentioned, that there are these huge. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Market failures in, in, in agricultural production. So we do want to pay you uh, when you deliver these environmental services that are a benefit uh, to society as a whole. So we want to put in place what they are calling an environmental land management uh, scheme, effectively a sort of a, an agri-environment scheme, but which would probably deliver more in terms of funding uh, to uh, farmers, particularly in England, as I say, uh, than uh, than the current agri-environment schemes would, would do. So they, the, the proposal would be, in a nutshell, to switch funding away from these per hectare payments and to make uh, more funding available for agri-environment schemes. But then a lot will depend, as we have discussed, on how these agri-environment schemes are designed um, uh, and what uh, particular environmental benefits farmers will be, will be paid for. And one of the controversial issues here is that under European law, uh, there is a sort of uh, baseline, a reference for the payments that farmers should get uh, for agri-environment payments, which is that it should compensate them for, for any income that they forego, any income that they lose as a result of following the environmental practices. So, for example, if you take uh, a field or half a field out of production uh, because you're going to leave it uh, fallow or you're going to plant uh, wildflowers um, uh, so that it becomes a sort of a, a biodiversity habitat, you know, you can easily calculate what is the cost of doing that in terms of the 
the, the lost opportunity to, to to cultivate it, to plant it, or to use it for for, for grazing or, or or whatever. So that sets, if you like, a maximum amount that the farmer can get. There is a, another view that what farmers should receive is the value of the service uh, that they provide, not necessarily the cost of providing it, but the value that it provides, which you know many people might see as 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 being you know rather more. Um, now, if you had a properly functioning market, uh, of course, at the margin, the value of the service uh, should equal the cost of providing it. Otherwise, you have a market failure. You're not at a, at a market equilibrium. Uh, but in the case of agri-environment payments, uh, you're always budget constrained. You know, there's always a fixed budget uh, that the Ministry of Agriculture has. So it is likely in those cases that the value of the service is going to be somewhat greater than the cost of providing it. So if you have greater flexibility in, in, uh, in, in deciding on the size of the payment that you're going to make to farmers for the environmental service, then these schemes could, be, could become much more attractive. You, you, I think you could see that they would be much more attractive to farmers to enroll. The difficulty is, of course, how do you decide what should that payment uh, should be? Because if you simply uh, don't have any basis for 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 making it, um, then it becomes a bargain between the farm unions uh, and the ministry, um, and you're open to what we have seen in the European Union, essentially greenwashing, where you're making large payments to farmers allegedly for providing environmental services, but actually, if you start looking at what you're getting for those uh, for those payments, it, it maybe isn't really uh, very significant. So, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see how uh, the UK, and in particular, the English authorities, address these problems over the next few years. And for those of us in Europe, in a sense, we, we, we have a ready-made experiment on our doorstep. Uh, you know, and it will be fascinating to see how that works out. Because if it works out as a success, it could become, you know, a, a, a real beacon uh, for change also within the European Union's agricultural policy. Um, and, and vice versa, of course. It, yeah. No, very interesting experiment. And also, Brexit provided this shift that you could, you're not necessarily tied to what came before and then it allowed them that flexibility, I suppose. Um, when you mentioned the um, breakdown between cost and value, it feels like, well, who, do you, who gets the rent here? Do we, does, the, does the person, the, the, the social society get it or does the farmer get it? And it's a very philosophical question, I suppose. But, um, yeah, no, no. Well, for economists, that, of course, that's a, a, a hugely interesting question. And of course, if you, if you try to... Uh, use some kind of auctioning mechanism where you ask farmers to to bid uh, for what they would need to receive in order to enroll in a particular environmental scheme. Of course, in that way, uh, you are maximizing the the environmental value of your of your budget, uh, and you are restricting the rent that the farmer uh, receives. Um, uh, whereas if you simply say, well, I'm going to say that if you leave 5% uh, uh, of your arable area fallow and, 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 and don't plant it, 
you know, we are going to give you uh, X hundred euro per hectare, um, uh, where X is something that is negotiated, if you like, between the farmers and society. Uh, you know, you may get a lot of farmers wanting to enroll because it becomes a very attractive scheme, but you may not get very much environmental benefit from your from your budget uh, point of view. So, you know, uh, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not an enthusiastic supporter of this uh, value based payment system because I think it could be very easily abused. Um, but on the other hand, it's clear that agri environmental schemes are disproportionately taken up by the more extensive farmers. You, you see relatively few intensive farmers enrolling in these schemes. And yet these are the guys that you would actually like to, 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 to get involved. So, you know, there, we do need to look at the incentive uh, payment uh, structure uh, to try to, to match it better to, to needs. Would that motivate some sort of shift between your, your pillar one and your pillar two payments, so your pillar one payment where it's more to do with pr productivity, does that need to be more in line with environmental, agri-environmental schemes to try and bring these sort of dairy farmers in who wouldn't really pay much attention to, to the, or those, those schemes wouldn't constitute a large amount of their, of their income otherwise? You know, pillar one uh, of the cap uh, that you mentioned there is essentially... Uh, the fund that uh, pays the direct payments uh, to, to farmers, also uh, some market price support, but, but mostly the direct payments. And your pillar two is, is what we call rural development programming, uh, which uh, is mainly uh, project-based schemes. Uh, so it can be investment uh, grants to farmers, it can be installation aid uh, for younger farmers, or it can be agri-environment uh, schemes. So the question is, uh, you know, should we be seeing uh, greater emphasis on, on these, uh, you know, pillar two schemes, because they're the ones that deliver more, at least potentially deliver more environmental benefit. Um, a couple of points here. First of all, uh, I mean, the, the main difference between pillar one and pillar two is not so much what they support, uh, they, they clearly do support different things, uh, but it's more in uh, the way in which they are programmed and, and financed. So the Pillar 1 is 100% funded from the EU budget. So all of the farmers' direct payments come from the EU budget. There's no national contribution. Whereas for the rural development side, uh, there is, you know, quite a significant uh, national contribution, what we call co-financing uh, from national budgets added to the money that is coming uh, directly from the EU. So, so that would be an important uh, difference. Actually, in the uh, reform proposal, there is a lot of flexibility given to member states to move uh, money uh, between the two funds. So although the initial allocation uh, is, is fixed, so Ireland gets uh, a certain amount under Pillar 1, it gets a certain amount under Pillar 2, but actually we could shift quite a lot of our Pillar 1 money uh, into uh, agri-environment type schemes uh, if there was a political will uh, to do that. Another uh, change in the coming cap is that for the first time, uh, it will be mandatory uh, to have uh, agri-environment schemes funded also in, in the first pillar, in pillar one. Uh, 
so this is a new innovation. These are these are referred to as eco schemes, um, but they are essentially uh, agri-environment schemes, um, which the Commission hopes will 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 uh, will attract, if you like, some of the more intensive farmers into into agri-environment schemes. You know that have not been attracted into the voluntary schemes uh, in, in in Pillar Two up to up to now. So you know there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of possibilities to do the right thing in terms of making more effective use of, of cap funding. Uh, what, what, what constrains this is, if you like, traditional political economy considerations that it's a fixed budget. And if you want to move money into environmental schemes, you have to take it away from those farmers that are receiving uh, direct payments. They are going to get less money. And, you know, invariably, people who lose shout louder than the people who potentially uh, may gain. So there is this huge inbuilt resistance to change. You know, economists have this sort of technical term of sort of rent-seeking uh, but I think it's it's just simply easy to to understand that if you if you're receiving uh, a subsidy, a support payment, um, it's it's you know it's natural that you should resist giving that up. Um, uh, uh, but but you know that's uh, that's what's required if we are to actually address some of the the, the really urgent challenges that 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 face both agriculture and the food system uh, in the coming years. Okay. Well, thanks, Alan. I'm not, we've gone way over time, and I don't want to take up any more of your time. I, thanks a million. I, that was really, really interesting, and I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Take care. Okay. Yep. Bye then. My thanks to Alan for a really engaging conversation. Hopefully, that clarifies a lot of the details surrounding the cap. Thanks to my patrons for supporting the podcast. And if you want to become a patron, check out the page at patreon.com forward slash Irish Pod. I have some exciting developments in store for the podcast over the coming weeks. More details next week. And in the meantime, all the best and we'll talk to you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.